Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of your Pacific Northwest Fungo Banter Podcast. I am Eric Sorensen here in Big Country Studios in Ellensburg, Washington, ready to bring you an exciting, um, awesome interview here with the catching director, quality control coach of the New York Yankees, Tanner Swanson. I was lucky enough to meet Tanner at my uh, junior year at Central Washington University. He coached us there, and that was one of his stops along the way to where he is today. Awesome dude, great insight into catching, a dude that works very hard and, and takes pride in what he does. Super excited. Hope you guys enjoy it. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts. Please get on there, subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, follow us on Twitter at PNW. <clears throat> sorry, at Fungo Banter PNW on Facebook at Pacific Northwest Fungo Banter. We're going to be posting questions and some polls and, and just want some dialogue and conversation with you fans out there. So keep a lookout for that. Well, you know what? That's enough for me. Without further ado, let's bring on Coach Tanner. All right, Fungo Banter fans are back with our guest this week, the catching director and quality control coach for the New York Yankees, Tanner Swanson. Tanner, thanks for joining us. Big country. Thanks, man. I'm excited to be here. We are so excited to have you on. Thanks for joining us. And right away, what's your favorite Fungo? I defer to probably the SSK long. Um, that'd be my go-to, but I have to give some love to, to Devo Bats, um, ex-college roommate, local Northwest bat company out of Tri-Cities. He sends me fungos every year, and, and so I make sure to mix those in too. Oh, that's awesome. That we, that's been the, kind of a fun question, all the answers we've been getting so far. So, okay, you're with the New York Yankees now, but where did where did you start? And what was the path that got you to where you're at today? Um, I think untraditional in, in a lot of sense, I think is how I describe it. It was, uh, I've had a chance to coach at every level. Um, you know, I graduated from Central Washington University back, you know, that, that goes back um, to the root of probably our relationship. Um, graduated in 2005, 2005, excuse me. Um, immediately, got into teaching and coaching. I, I was an assistant, um, at my alma mater, Cleveland Rosen high school, um, for one season while I was student teaching at Ellensburg high school. Um, so I was kind of dabbling into, I got right into coaching, you know, immediately following, um, playing, um, from there, um, helped out at Sultan high school, which is where I, I moved on and, and, and taught for two, two years. Um, from there, started uh, at, at Everett Community College, which is, I, I played before um, transferring to Central. Um, so I got a taste of, of junior college um, baseball. Um, you know, I, I played in the NWAC, so I was semi-familiar with it. But I was kind of slowly finding my interest and passion, um, gravitating, you know, closer to the coaching side and, and a little bit further removed from um, the traditional classroom. Um, you know, after that, I, I was asked to come back to Central Washington. Um, I was in the process of pursuing my master's degree. Um, so I, I was an adjunct professor there for one year, um, which is the year I helped out there. Uh, I don't, what year was that for you? Was Eric, Gosh, was that your to... junior year? Yeah, my junior year. Was that 2015? Kelly's flashing signs on the, the Zoom meeting, but I'm terrible at that. Do you say? But oh, he's <laughs> I, regardless, I the, the one the, the season we spent together, um, you know, was my was my the year I returned to Ellensburg. 
Um, the following year, um, I accepted a head coaching position at Green River Community College um, and, you know, was kind of just decided to die of all in. I, I you know, left a, a, a pretty good job in Ellensburg to pursue this coaching thing full time, um, even though the, the stipend or salary was nowhere near full time. Um, but I, I wanted to give it a go. I was still relatively young and no kids. And, and so I spent um, only one season. I, you know, that was obviously not the, the plan. I was, uh, went in it with the intention of, of trying to kind of turn that program over and, and build something there. And, uh, but after one season, I realized pretty quickly how much I had to learn still. And all of a sudden you get thrown into a head coaching role um, and you're wearing a lot of different hats. You're the, you're the fundraiser, you're the academic advisor, you're the, the leader. Um, and, and so, you know, I, at that point, you know, I, I knew that coaching was, was something I was really passionate about. And, and, and yet I was really hungry to, to continue to learn. Um, that summer I was working um, youth camps at the University of Washington. And uh, at the conclusion of that summer was asked to join their staff as a, a student manager, which was, I guess, on paper, a, a step backwards from the role I was in. But, but I viewed it as an opportunity to, to get into the to, um, division one baseball and to be around, um, some really good coaches within the PAC 12. Um, and, and I kind of approached it as, as really a, a, a doctorate in, in baseball in some ways, just being able to observe the, the John Savages of the world or George Horton or Andy Lopez and, um, coaches we got to compete against, you know, on a, on a weekly basis. And, and so, um, I really just tried to soak up everything I could while I was there. Um, and I spent, ended up spending five seasons at the University of Washington in various roles and eventually moved into the um, director of baseball operations, then um, volunteer assistant where I spent the majority of my time. Um, and then from there, I had a chance to move on. I, I took a, a full-time assistant um, role at Santa Clara. I was only there briefly, didn't even um, coach a game. I, I recruited the whole summer. Um, I think that was 2017. And then, um, you know, shortly before the season started, I was approached by the Minnesota twins and ended up accepting a role as their minor league catching coordinator where I spent two seasons. Um, and then most recently, um, this off season, um, accepted, um, a full-time major league um, position with the New York Yankees. So it's, it's been a fun journey. I've, I've had a chance, like I said, to see every level, um, and here we are. So I'm just trying to embrace the moment and, and uh, you know, continue to improve, I think, like everybody. Yeah, Swanee, it's crazy uh, just how the connections to that University of Washington gave so many people their start. I mean, your and I's paths were, were, were somewhat similar as far as starting in that manager role. Um, you know, I remember getting a call in the summer um, coaching with one of our good friends, Abe Silvestri, who was also at Central. Mm -hmm. I remember you giving that call of, hey, this position's opening up. I'm moving up to a, a better role there. And, you know, obviously I'm forever grateful for that opportunity. But um, just those summer camps, we talked about it with some guys before of of how that connection, that group of, of us coaches in the Northwest has absolutely blown up now. And so many great people that really got their starts from just being creative on a backfield at the University of Washington, not even on the main field for a couple summers, but just learning to be creative with whatever, chuck it, tennis ball, uh, dodgeball, whatever that was there to our expense, just kind of learning to, to 
create new things. And I think it's what drives us and has helped us all out to get us to where we're at now. Yeah, I mean, looking back on on that experience, um, I mean, we we had we must have had the most overqualified um, youth camp staff, you know, in in America. Um, there's there's a lot of coaches who, like you said, got their start there, and um, it's been fun for me to to watch, you know, everybody's careers kind of blossom, and 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 there's a large group of of coaches who who came through that camp program that have. Um, kind of infiltrated professional baseball and several that are in the in the big leagues and um, you know so it's it's been fun to watch uh, just the the momentum I think that a lot of coaches from the northwest have have gained and, and being able to look back and say that's kind of where it all started um, is is something I'm proud of uh, no question so let's talk a little bit about your uh, your start into catching I think one thing that might get um, get lost in the shuffle for just how far you've come but talk about that initial start into learning the catching position. I know it was a role that has had a void at Washington when you first started there. And, you know, I think you kind of took it in stride and, and really made yourself into the person you are just from the research and stuff that, uh, that happened. But talk about that, that process of, of learning the position um, and becoming fully immersed into that to build the core values that you have today. Yeah, it was kind of by default, to be honest. Um, you know, when I got to when I got to UW, um, you know, Dave Dangler, who at the time was the pitching coach, um, was also you know wearing the, the catching coach hat. Um, you know, they didn't have a, a formal staff member who was responsible for the catchers, so um, he was trying to do both jobs at the same time. And and I came in in more of a supportive role. Um, and slowly, you know, he started to to kind of uh, hand me the reins and and in in some capacity and um you know but the catch the catching position is something i've always been really intrigued in uh, my you know my dad um you know was a was a left-handed catcher oddly enough you know and there's a there's a netflix documentary the battered bastards of baseball about the independent baseball team he played on um in portland called the portland mavericks and so i i, I grew up hearing stories about um and, and just learning the passion my my father had for the position you know and I played it at a younger level um but it wasn't something you know, I was an infielder as a as a high school and, and collegiate player um but once I got to UW I, I kind of just gravitated there because that's where the need was and I think it's looking back it's helped me get to the position I'm in um probably greater than anything else because I, I feel like I didn't have a lot of the biases that we all carry, you know, in terms of this is how I used to do it when I was a player, or this is how my catching coach, um, you know, taught me. And I think we just kind of carry these, these unconscious biases about, um, or what we think is true and right. And, um, I didn't have any of that. I had, I, I was able to really look at the position, I think from a, a fresh perspective. And I think more than anything, I think I asked good questions, you know, not, I didn't always have good answers, but I was asking questions I think that other people weren't in terms of this doesn't make a lot of sense. Why has it always been done this way? Um, and so I, I just, you know, over time was started really digging in on, on the position and, and trying to acquire as much info as I, as I, as I could. And, and, and I continue um, to do just that. Um, but I, I think another really important piece to this is that I think there's a lot of coaches and, and Kelly, I think when you left for Fresno, um, you know, you took a volunteer assistant role, right? And, and 
I, that was my role at Washington for a long time. And, and that was probably the best thing for me. Whereas um, I, I probably could have taken a job, you know, at a smaller school in a paid um, or a full-time, you know, recruiting type role, uh, but chose to stay at Washington um, because I was enjoying just the opportunity to continue to learn and to, and to, and to really find focus um, around the player development side. And, and I think looking at a lot of other coaches that I was around who were in recruiting roles, um, not that I would do it any different, but it's, it's a lot easier to recruit a good player than it is to develop one. So it's coaches attention is always divided between recruiting and player development and recruiting and player development. And, and I didn't have that luxury. I, I had to be hyper-focused on the, the player development side because I, I wasn't allowed to recruit. So um, I think it really benefited me in a lot of ways because I got to spend so much time and attention into kind of mastering my craft. Um, and around that time, I started speaking at coaching conventions. And I, I learned that that process for me was really valuable too, not because I love public speaking by any means, um, but that process of having to prepare something um, as quote unquote the expert and then get up in front of a group and deliver something that's quality. Um, I loved that pressure and, and I loved the preparation that came along with that. And selfishly, I always left those experiences because of the work I would do leading up to it. Um, just learning more and more and more and digging deeper and deeper on concepts that I hadn't really um, understood maybe as like, like I thought I did until I really started peeling back the onion. Um, so I, because of that, I'd, I'd continue to say yes to, to those types of things and, and more and more of those types of opportunities, you know, were starting to come and uh, have a chance to speak on the main stage at the ABCA, um, which was a, a really cool experience. Um, but my point is that that process, like, really created something creatively for me, like, to prepare for those presentations. Um, it was probably the best thing I, I, I had, you know, best thing I did throughout the entire process from a personal development standpoint. And then, which is why I continue to say yes to those things now, even, even within the role that I'm in, because it, I think it just helps me continue to grow. That's good coach. Um, man, that's so good. That's, 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 it's, uh, it's exciting to hear that. Um, and, uh, super positive. I think that it, that's how we grow as coaches. You know I mean? If we're, aren't asking questions, um, you know, we're kind of stagnant, you know, and so it, it's, I think it's totally important that, you know, no matter at what level you're at, mm -hmm. you're always going to be growing and that term, you know, like you come, you know, satisfactory. I, I feel like we lose a lot, um, in our, in our aspect of, of the involvement of the game. And so I want to ask you coach, um, on the high school side of things, how would you communicate to a high school coach, the importance of the role of, of the catching position? I know, you know, you look at a lot of high school programs and, and, you know, of course you got your infielder coach or maybe you got your outfielder coach, you got it, you know, and they're, we're so stretched thin as it is, you know, we don't get the budgets for multiple coaches on our staff, but how would you, you know, talk to the, you know, uh, the high school coach about the importance of the, the, the catching position and how you correlate those core fundamentals of, you know, what you've learned into um, development of uh, a high school catcher. I think second to the pitcher, it, it's probably the most valuable or, or the, the, um, the most valuable 
piece to, to the whole run prevention equation, right? And, and I think too often we neglect that position for a lot of reasons. Just it it's, can be difficult to manage. Um, maybe you're, you're cut short on, on coaches and, and bodies and resources. Um, there ha- there's not a lot of people who, um, obviously, if you, there's very few that play the position. And typically that just by natural selection, there's very few that then coach it. And so for, for a lot of different reasons, um, you know, catchers get neglected at amateur levels and probably at all levels. Um, and in, in, when you look at it from a, where can I get the greatest return on investment? I think there's tremendous opportunity to invest in your catchers, um, because of the impact it has on the outcome of the game, you know, um, based on just sheer frequency, you know, the number of pitches they receive throughout the course of a game and, and catchers who do that really well um the value that has um and the impact it has over the course of a game or a season is tremendous which is which could easily transition the conversation to you know pitch framing and how much attention that is getting um in professional baseball now because we can we can now put a number on it and quantify um just how big of an impact it really does have like the addition of a strike what that means um for a single at bat and how it can really swing, um, you know, leverage into, you know, the pitcher's favor. And, and so I think forever intuitively people understood that yes, receiving is important. Catchers are important. Um, but I think we have a, a greater, um, sense of, of what that value really is. And, and it's tremendous. Um, so if, if I were an amateur coach, you know, I, I would do everything within my power to make sure that, either I took it upon myself or I invested in, in somebody else to make sure that our catchers um, are getting attention, you know, aside from just go catch bullpens, you know, there is, there is time devoted to, you know, to skill development, to, to refining their craft, to game calling, to, to all the different components that go into making a, a championship type catcher. Um, but, but if you look at any good team and any good team that anybody on this call has been on more often than not, you know, you can say, you could, you could look at the guy behind the plate and say, Hey, we had a good catcher. You know, every championship team has a guy behind the plate, um, who, who is really competent at, at his, at his skill set, And, and so I, I think it's tremendously important. And, and I think I would advocate, you know, to the moon that, that we should be giving our, our amateur catchers more attention and more love and, and more time and commitment. Where, you know, coach, when you're talking, you know, I totally agree with you because a good catcher can completely shut down our <clears throat> our offensive strategy and things. What are some of the mm-hmm. core values that you would hold to to the high school coach and maybe you know some of the core things and day to day stuff that you use even with the Yankees? Um, you know, my philosophy here is has shifted you know quite a bit um, since I've jumped into professional baseball. So I don't I don't know how. Mm-hmm this applies directly to the amateur game, but I, I, I think it's relevant. I, you know, when I was at the university of Washington, my goal, like many coaches, was to create the most dynamic catcher, you know, ever, right. It was, let, let's, let's create an elite receiver, an elite blocker, an elite thrower, um, a guy who manages the pitching staff, um, who's a good game call, all everything, right. You try to package it all. And I think w- what I missed is that I think when, when you when your goal is to be kind of the jack of all trades, um, I think you you miss really nailing any one thing. And, and I look back, and although we had some really good catchers during my time at the University of Washington, um, guys that 
you know, had an opportunity to go on and play professional baseball. Um, none of them have really excelled at, in the professional game. Um, and, and I, I kind of take that personally. Um, and I think it was for that reason. It was when you try to be good at everything, I think you end up being kind of average at a lot of different things. And, and you, you really fail to nail, you know, the thing that matters the most. And, and, and once I got into professional baseball, I, it kind of really opened up my eyes to what that really is. And, and that's the receiving piece. And, um, and really looking at everything surrounding the position through that lens. And, and so if we had a core value of the New York Yankees, it's to be the best pitch frame in organization in baseball um, because it has the greatest impact on saving runs. And that's, that's the bottom line. That's what, that's what, that's the name of the game. It's, it's creating runs and trying to save runs. And, um, and so, and that, that's not to say that blocking and throwing and some of these other things don't matter because um, they do, you know, preventing 90 feet still has value. Um, but the impact that a strike can have on the, on it, on, in a bat and throughout the course of a game is, is just astronomically, you know, greater than, than anything else a catcher does. So um, being able to look at, okay, what is the, what is the game economy in terms of what does the game require? How many, how many receiving opportunities versus how many blocking opportunities, how many throwing opportunities, et cetera. And once I started to look at it through that context, it changed how I started training catchers. You know, when, when, if, if you're training catchers equally receive block throw yet the catcher is going to maybe make one throw per game. Um, and he's going to receive a hundred plus pitches. Um, I, I think that, that doesn't make a lot of sense just, you know, logically. And so, um, being able to try to match your training economy to the game economy, um, is, is where I really pivoted once I got into professional baseball and started putting a lot more attention into, um, just refining the, our receiving ability and our ability to manipulate the strike zone and to add strikes. And, and, and that's when I think, um, you know, we started doing some innovative things to, to try to leverage that, um, that information. And, and, and that led to, you know, some alternative types of setups and, and things that have been pretty well documented. And, and, and I think largely is, is contributed to me ascending into the role that I'm in now um, is, is because we've, we've we're 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 gaming towards trying to create more strikes and and the way the traditional methods um may not be you know the ideal and and so i i I, we've really pushed when i was in minnesota we really pushed boundaries there to to try to learn you know what are the optimal receiving positions and stances and and why are they not you know what we've seen forever and and, um you know if, if we look at this creatively can we can we start to utilize some of these other setups to leverage the strike zone but still be able to block and throw you know at a high level because I, I don't think the catching position is getting any easier I think in a lot of ways it's getting harder you know as as pitchers continue to develop at a really fast rate um, in terms of velocity and movement and and so forth we're, we're across I think every level of our game we're seeing better breaking balls okay, in terms of movement quality okay, with, with a lot of the technology and things that's available now to, to, to provide feedback on, on, you know, vertical break and horizontal break and spin rate and, and, and so forth. Um, you're seeing 
players are developing better breaking balls, right? They're throwing harder breaking balls in terms of velocity and we're throwing more of them, right? So like the demands on the catcher are, it's getting harder. It's getting, not getting easier. And so um, I think because of that, I think there's an opportunity to also evolve, you know, with the game. And, 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 and uh, so I, I think in, in a lot of ways, you know, that's been my approach and, and we're doing that in terms of trying to think creatively about, you know, potentially new ways that we can improve, you know, the, the effectiveness of, of everything a catcher does. So Swanee, you talk a little bit about prioritizing that receiving piece, um, which we actually experimented a little bit this year at, at St. Martin's and definitely, definitely helped, but there's a learning curve that obviously comes with it. And, and you guys have that mm-hmm. spring training time that it helps out there, but right. what have, what have you found that, where's that give and take, um balance of if we're one knee you know have you been able to quantify what you're giving up from a throwing standpoint uh, maybe from a blocking standpoint um because if, if you go down levels to college whether division one lower levels down to high school down to youth um where the game's a little bit different with with run game um with accuracy not being as good with pitchers you know how, sure. how does that give and take and, and what have you found so far in your research of, of what you actually might be giving up whether whether good or good or uh, large or small um it's that's a it's a really good question and and um, this isn't me on a soapbox or trying to take shots at anybody but but i think a lot of the criticism that this style um generates i think comes from a coaches that either don't really understand it that well or they don't really believe in it and they almost want it to fail. And they're looking for reasons to say, see, this doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying this is you by any means, but I think a a lot of coaches just say, okay, well, this is the trend. So just get on a knee and you'll be better. And I think it's, it's a lot more complicated than that. Um, And, and it requires like really intentional training to learn how to move. You're basically learning to catch from ground zero, like you're from scratch. Like it's a completely new style. Um, you know, especially when you take a catcher who's done it one way his whole life and then you tell him, okay, no, that's wrong. We're going to do it this way. I want you to put your knee on the ground. And, um, and, and if, if, if that's kind of the depth of, or if, if, if you never get past that kind of surface level, um, and really get in a, into the nuances, okay, or how are we going to block? How are we going to move laterally? How are we going to transition up to throw, um, how, we're going to start in, in this position to control for the run game when the guy doesn't run. Okay. Now we're going to transition into our, our received block stance and, and what's the timing of those transitions. Mm-hmm. And, and, and even, even within, you know, the, the context of kind of the style or system itself, it's still different from individual to individual. And, and in a lot of ways, I, I'm still learning things, you know, each year, um, in terms of, of what works for what worked for Mitch Garber in Minnesota, you know, it isn't may may not work exactly the same for Gary Sanchez, and and in a lot of ways this is uncharted territory, and it takes a lot of trial and error and experimentation to figure out what are the movement solutions within the confines of this style that are going to allow each individual guy to be able to feel like he's not stuck and he, he does have some, some lateral mobility and he can't explode out of a, a one knee setup to throw. Um, so it, it, 
it's, I think it takes a, a while to develop that process. Um, and I think too many coaches are, are just looking for the quick fix and just get on a knee and, and like everything's good. Um, so I think if you take the time to really devote to, and sometimes we don't have the luxury of time and that's part of the problem probably with amateur player with amateur players who are, who are um, experimenting with this style is, is it's, we, we try to rush that development curve because we're, we're strapped for time. And so I totally get that, that, that side of it. Um, but I think if you do take the time to really refine those details, um, like we were able to do, you know, in our system in Minnesota, um, I don't think there's any trade-off. I think not only is it a better receiving position, I mean, we, we led for all of minor league baseball in pitch framing, um, and the transformation from the two years prior to, you know, when I first got there, Minnesota was third from last. And with the generally the same players, two years later, we led professional baseball just because we looked at, we looked at it completely different and we took a completely different approach. Um, and so not, but what people don't talk about is that we were also within the top five as a blocking organization. And uh, I think in a lot of ways, it's a better blocking position too. And I wouldn't have said that at the start. Like when we first got went down this path, in my mind, if we get a little bit worse at blocking and worse at throwing, but our pitch framing gets exponentially better, that's a net win. We'll take that. But that's not actually what we learned. Like we got our, we, our blocking improved. Our throwing largely stayed the same. Um, we didn't see any meaningful change, good or bad. Um, but I think it's, it's a more optimal blocking position too because you're already – starting you're halfway there you're already on the ground um and and not to get off topic here but I, the, the presentation i gave in anaheim a couple years ago um i would throw it out the window now like because a lot of it was about creating chaos and and using variability and forcing decision making amongst the catchers you know through you know more dynamic type drill work where it was you know, it might be a receive, it could be a block, it could be a throw, and it was just less predictable. And, and my whole thought process was I'm trying to create um, or, or force the catchers to make decisions in our training because that's what the game requires. Um, but I can't say with confidence that, our, our, that they became better decision makers, like that their perceptual skills really improved. I, I think research is pretty fuzzy on whether you can really impact perceptual skills Um at, at that at that age in, in development um and so really i think i was looking at the problem backwards it was instead of trying to make an earlier decision like let's make a later decision and because catchers th throughout our game right now that are doing it traditionally they end up on a knee anyway because they're fault they're they're hedging between is this ball going to bounce or is it not you know the pitch that's that's two balls below the strike zone that's a, a, a firm slider that's got some depth if you're in a secondary stance and you don't respect that that pitch could bounce I mean you'll you'll never get to the ground in time and, and so catchers are always by traditional methods like they, they end up falling to do a knee anyway and it compromises their ability to catch that pitch and and that's the part of the strike zone that the best pitch framers dominate which is, is the bottom and especially when you look at there's increased opportunities down there with the trends we see in breaking ball usage. Now, I mean, we're throwing more breaking balls than fastballs in the big leagues. And, and so there's a lot of pitches that are ending up at the bottom of the strike zone. 
And those are opportunities that can really impact the course of a game. And if you're hedging between receiving and blocking, you, you typically don't handle those pitches very well. And so based on the style now that, that, that we're utilizing by starting on a knee, I don't have to transition to the ground. I'm already there. And so now I can make a later decision instead of an earlier one. And, and that allows the catchers to stay committed to that pitch in the bottom of the strike zone much longer. And I think that's really the difference that we've experienced is that our catchers are now catching that pitch really well and manipulating it because they're not caught in between receiver block. And, and now the block is really just an extension of the catch. You know, it's like it's a catch, 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 or catch, 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 last second. I turn the glove over and it becomes a block. And, and so I've looked at it now as like not a separate skill, you know, blocking is just an extension of receiving. And, and so it's, it's a completely unique, I think, perspective that, that I've transitioned to, you know, in the last couple of years. Um, But we've yielded really positive, you know, gains from a receiving standpoint, but also a blocking standpoint. And, and so I think there's, you know, I'm not saying this is the way and this is perfect, um, but I think we're closer to right than, you know, what we've seen, you know, done historically. Long answer. Sorry. Oh, it, hey, oh, that's good. I, I, I want to know from you. Oh, go ahead. Oh, go, go ahead, Eric. Go ahead, Jason. Oh, Tony, I was going to ask you, um, how much does the mental role play into that, that preparation? Um, I mean, you, you got a, 95 plus sometimes you know uh you know you know pitch coming at you and you got to see where that pitch is could be in it release but how much is your preparation with your catchers and in, in the mental role of getting out there and knowing to read the pitch and and the direction of the pitch and being in front of it and all those aspects of the game um it's it's different and and when you when we first put players in these positions um we get kind of mixed reviews. Some guys immediately feel comfortable, like, man, I've wanted to do this forever and it's never been allowed. Um, you know, and, and so some guys are immediately, you know, feel confident and comfortable in the, in those positions. Other guys, um, although it may feel comfortable, there's still a, a, a pretty large component of just fear, right? It's, it's different. What if I'm criticized for it? How am I going to block? There's still a lot of questions. And I think until it's battle tested, until, you know, a player's willing to take it into a game, um, I, I think it's hard to really gain that confidence. And so there is a, it's, there is a level of risk and, and vulnerability that you have to really just kind of dive into the pool instead of dipping your toes and, um, and see what happens. And minor league baseball is great for that reason because, um, although nobody likes to miss a block or chase a ball to the backstop um, winning isn't, you know, we all want to win, but it's, it's not the main thing, you know? So, and we play so many games that it's a little bit different in terms of, or maybe a little bit easier to, to take that risk, um, especially if it's being supported by your organization and, and, and your coaching staff. Um, you know, we don't always have that luxury at the, at the amateur level. It's, you know, we need to win every game is a, it's a one game playoff. And, and so it's, you know, those mistakes can be magnified to, to some degree and it's a little bit harder to allow yourself to, to really be vulnerable and to try something that's different. Um, but I think you, you can, you can get close to that and you can, you can gain some confidence. Um, 
you know, just through your training, you know, and, and getting comfortable in the bullpen and, and u- utilizing in, in your scrimmages and, and so forth. Um, but I think you still have, there's still a little bit of doubt until, you know, you, until you have, you know, game success. Um, you know, that's, that's, I think kind of the, the, the final phase where it's got to work in the game. Otherwise, you know, nothing else matters. That's why we do everything that we do is to prepare you for the game. And so if it doesn't help you in the game, then it's, it doesn't matter. Right. So, um, yeah, but some, some people are, 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 uh, I think, you know, more eager to, to give it a go and to give it a shot. And, and some people um, are not. And I think, you know, that's really just, I think you, it's, it's, it's on a continuum or a spectrum and it just really depends on the individual. Bonnie, talk about, uh, you know, some of the stuff that's being debated and, and considered at the major league level about the robo umps and, and, the effect that that will have on the position. I, I probably have a pretty good feel. We haven't talked about this prior, but I would probably have a pretty good feel of, of where your take is on this. But uh, where, where do you think that that makes an adjustment for, for your instruction and catchers as a whole? Um, or does it make an adjustment at all for, for what you're doing because of the effectiveness and the blocking that you talked about? Yeah, I think I, I've thought about this a lot because, you know, I'm going to have to adapt if, if, if this comes. Um, and so just trying to think ahead or, or stay ahead and, and, and kind of foreshadow what that may look like, you know, I, I don't know. Like, I think it definitely becomes a blocking, um, centric position. Like the block is becomes, um, much more valuable. Um, I don't, I don't think the run game will change much. I, I think, um, you know, teams still largely don't run and, and stolen base trends, at least at the major league level, continue to decline every year. Um, and I think largely just be- that is because managers um, are, have a better understanding of just the value of an out. And, and it's not worth, you know, adding 90 feet for an out, um, which is the argument against the bunt, right? Is it's, it's not worth it from a, from a run value standpoint. So, you know, really managers now at the major league level, at least like you only run when you can be safe. And, and now there's so much information. It's, it's pretty easy. Um, and this is, you can get this information from just paying attention to the dugout, um, how quick the guy is to the plate, how good's the catcher's arm, how quickly does my guy run from A to B. And it's, it's, it's math at that point. Um, but so I don't see running the running game stuff really changing that much. Um, but I think it does become a block heavy, offensive um, position where almost a, you know, a second DH role where you throw, you know, you throw a bat back there and you you put him in some hockey gear and ask him to lay sideways and, and just make sure nothing goes to the backstop. And um, so I don't know, I think it would be horrible. Um, Not not just because it's directly related to my role, but I just, I think it'd be bad for the game and, um, I also think there's some other unintended consequences that, you know, that could come from this. Like, I think anytime there's changes, you know, there's a race to figure out how you can leverage that change, right, and adapt to it. And and so I, I think they'd have to include the the ability to steal first base, which is as crazy as that sounds. Like, 
at least it would add an incentive to block the ball with less than two strikes or nobody on base. Um, you know, otherwise with the bases empty and less than two strikes, if you don't like Geraldus Chapman's slider, you don't even have to catch it. And like, you don't even have to attempt to catch it. You know, you can just get a new ball. And I think the umpire and the catcher will be fighting for real estate behind the plate. Um, like who can get out of the way. And so I think there's some umpire safety involved there. And, and even though they are in favor of this, this, this change, um, I think you'd have to be able to steal first base, you know, on any ball in the dirt that gets away from the catcher. Um, which I don't know. I just, maybe I'm a purist in, in that way where that just seems, you know, pretty ridiculous to me. Yeah. It's and the only thing about our game is just that, that, you know, that instruction that not necessarily trying to manipulate the umpire and whatnot, but catcher pitcher on the same page and um, learning a skill and trying to, you know, take a, a opponent's weakness and, and, and try to attack it, you know, and, and everything skill centric that we try to teach to be the most efficient we possibly can. Now it's changing the game as a whole. And now we're creating completely different ways of, of thinking of things while the game is completely changing to where it original core is. No, no doubt. And I think there's probably some other things that, that I would consider before, you know, going, you know, all in on an automated strike zone. I mean, um, whether it's, you know, one manager challenge per game, you know, if there's a, if there's a ball strike call that really changes the, the, the complexion of the game, um, you know, you could throw the flag, throw the yellow flag and go to the tape. And, and, uh, you know, and you, and you get a limited number of challenges or better yet, like, how about we just put the best umpires, the best ball strike umpires behind the plate? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but right now it's not how it's done. Everybody gets a turn and, and traditionally, you know, the older co- the older umpires are the worst ball. St- the ones with the most experience are the worst ball strike umpires. Um, like, and that's objective, that's fact. And, and I think for the reason that is, is that the newer generation of umpires, the younger generation of umpires, the new wave that's, that are, that are coming up is they're being promoted by merit, not by service time. Like if they're good at calling balls and strikes, they go to double A. If they're good at double A calling balls and strikes, they matriculate to triple A. And so now it's a system rewarded on performance, not just hey, we like this guy. He's been, you know, it's his turn. Um, you know, he's, we think he's good. You know, we've never really objectively evaluated him. Um, and I think that's what happens in the postseason too. It's like, and, and that's when this stuff, this conversation really heats up mm-hmm. is because the games matter the most. And it's, it's on TV and everybody, the catcher steals a strike and it's egregious and everybody talks about it and it's news and, and the narrative like gets a lot of attention um in my opinion you, you, you don't umpire in those postseason games unless you meet some criteria in terms of your ability to call balls and strikes and and i think there's some level of performance that that goes into how they select that but i think it's still largely driven by service time like if you're a veteran you've been doing this for a long time you know, you're, 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 in, you're, um, you're in the world series. Like, you know, so I don't know. I think there's, there's things of that nature where, you know, not everybody gets a turn back there. We're only going to put our best guys and maybe we're going to pay them more because they're going to assume some more risk. Um, and you have to meet some 
threshold to, you know, to, and, and that's what they do in football. Not everybody's a line judge. Like, you know, you have to perform at a certain level to move into those other roles. So I don't know. So one of you, uh, you know, I, if I'm the amateur coach out there listening to this podcast today and what, what kind of advice would you give to some of those amateur coaches out there that are just getting into the game that want to, you know, better their team and they, they realize and see the importance of the catching position. So what, what tools would you uh, advise for them to, to grasp and hold to grow their knowledge? Um, I mean, I think, I think there's no excuse to not, you know, have your, your pulse, have a pulse on, you know, what's happening in player development. I think information is so readily available, so much more so than when I was first getting started. Um, and now that sounds like, you know, back when I was a kid, like, you know, but, but that it, it was harder to acquire information. And, and right now it's really easy with things like this podcasts, zoom webinars, you know, coaches conventions, streaming, you know, presentations and it's at your fingertips. And I think, I think if, 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 if you're serious about this profession and, and, and trying to be really good at your craft, like you are, you are not only combing through all of those things and, and doing everything within your power to really keep your finger on the pulse of what's happening. But I think maybe more importantly, trying to figure out how you can contribute to the conversation. I think just taking the information in itself um, and then just repackaging it, I don't necessarily think it's enough. I think you miss, like if I, I talked about this earlier, I think one of the greatest things that I benefited from was like actually getting in the arena and standing on the stage and having to present and, and, and to, and contribute content um, knowing that a lot of it was like not right. And I'd look back and say, that was dumb. Like that was wrong. Um, this was criticized. Um, but I think that's part of the process. Like you have to be willing to be wrong. Um, and you have to have the courage to, to be vulnerable enough to, to share content, knowing that it's going to be, it's going to be critiqued. And I don't think, I, I think right now what, what, what I experience and, and, and this is just my opinion, but I think there's a lot of young coaches that are going, oh, well, okay, this, this catching one knee setup. So I'll just send Tanner Swanson a message and, hey, send me, send me your PowerPoint and, and, and I'll use his program. And then who's the best infield guy? I'll go find him and I'll buy his presentation or, you know, get his videos and we're going to roll out kind of a Correa's infield plan. And then we're going to find the hitting guy. And, we're, and, and so I don't know. I just, I, I don't think that's like you're utilizing everybody else's stuff and you don't really own it. Um, not that I haven't stolen. I mean, we, we all steal, but I think, I think the next level to that is, is you acquire all this information and then you figure out how to contribute to it and, and package it in a way that's authentic to you um, as opposed to just regurgitating other people's stuff. And, and so, cause I, I think you skip that step where you, you really start to dig and to peel back the layers and, and really understand something. Um, so 
that would be my advice to, to young coaches is to, yes, beg, borrow, steal, go find as much information as you can, but then figure out how to also contribute and be willing to put yourself out there and share knowing that, Hey, it's, it's, it's going to be criticized. It's going to be critiqued. I'm going to be wrong, but I think there's a lot of value in being wrong at times. And I think you learn a lot about yourself and, and about what adjustments you need to continue to make. And, and uh, so that's, that's my soapbox message um, is to, is to, is to get in the arena, you know, and not just throw stones from the, from the sideline. You know, coach, I think one of the things I wish I would have realized earlier in my, when I was a player and it was something I took from you and it was not being complacent in what you know, but make sure you get better and, and to question things, like you said, in the research and do stuff. Cause I was always stuck in my ways and this is how things are done. And that's how I was coached. But it wasn't right. until you, I, I got to play for you and you kind of questioned things and, and you put us through different things. And it wasn't the traditional way sometimes, not necessarily not traditional, but I think that's my biggest thing I noticed. And, and like you said, with the just watching someone's presentation, the kids can see right through you when you're trying to teach something that you truly don't know. Right. I think no that's, doubt. That's huge. Yep. Well, no I think the why factor, Swanee, I think that's, I saw it firsthand and I'm not going to, I remember incidents being at Washington when you're, when you're talking to guys and uh, whether that's an infielder or a catcher, but, but they, they just get this question thing, you know, the look on their face of, you know, well, why, why would I do that? Like, that's not, not what I'm supposed to do. But I think in time, I think just seeing your growth and your progression with the numbers and the stats and the backing, um, just being able to say like, this is the reason why we're able to do this, you know, and, and this is why it's efficient. This is why it works. And we're not always going to have a why, you know, there's a feel factor too of, of getting in the, you know, getting in the gutter and what either doing it for yourself or having the player do it and feeling just how free you are or more efficient you are and whatever it is. But I think that's what makes it the most fun, right? Is just being able to experiment and, and, you know, search for that right and wrong and have players question you um, to allow you to think more why you do something um, and be able to go back and, and, and build a base for um, your passions and your interests. I think a player's bullshit meter has never been higher. And I think, I think it's, it's changed in, in, in that regard. It's, it's in a lot of ways, like it, you better be prepared to have a why and to, and to really understand something that you're implementing um, or, or be willing to say, you know what, I don't know. And I think I really um, grew as, as a coach and kind of took another step in my development when I started saying, I don't know. When, I, when, when a player would ask me um, a question, okay, well, how am I going to transition? I mean, this is where this, this knee down stuff started. I remember um, being in Beloit in the Midwest League, Ben Rodriguez, Pepperdine graduate, now in low A for the Minnesota Twins. And he could not block out of a traditional stance. Couldn't do it. You know, he was kind of a converted catcher, part-time first baseman, you know, trying to figure it out. And, and so we put him in a knee down stance, like just, you know, I'd like to say that I had this all thought out and it was, you know, we just rolled, you know, it was all refined and we rolled it out. And, but it's, that's not the case at all. It happened somewhat organically um, where it was, well, how do you feel just starting in a, in the knee down position? Well, let's try it. Okay. Boom, boom, boom. Okay. Well, how am I going to move laterally? I don't know. Like, how about, what if we put our foot here? Like, Oh yeah, that feels okay. You know, and this is 20 minutes before the game and, 
And he goes, I think I'm going to do it in the game. I'm like, cool. All right. We'll see what happens. And, and, and right before that, he goes, well, how am I going to throw? What if they run? I go, I have no idea. Like, <laughs> I go, try to jump out of that to throw. And he goes, he, he, he jumps out of it and goes right, left, you know, footwork. And it was every bit as quick as, as normal. And mm-hmm. that was like an eye-opening moment for me going, hmm, that looked pretty quick. That looked like that could play. I've never seen anybody do it in a game, but give it a shot. And, and I didn't think he was going to do it the entire game. I thought he was going to pick and choose his spots. He caught every pitch of the entire game from that position. And he threw out two guys. I remember the salty, you know, manager who, you know, is coaching third base. And, and he sees our catcher in the first inning on a knee with a runner on first. And the manager gets a smirk and he puts on the steal. And Ben Rodriguez throws the best throw I've ever seen him make. Like, threw, he threw the guy out by six feet and it was electric. And I remember, like... I perked up on the top step, like, yep, I, that was me. Like, <laughs> but I had no idea how it was going to go and either did Ben, but you know, my point is like being willing to say, you know what? I don't know. I don't have all the answers. Let's figure this out together. I think sometimes, you know, players will amaze you and, and create, open your eye, your eyes to solutions that maybe you hadn't even considered. And, and that's exactly what happened. And, and so my, my point is like, you better have a why, or you better be willing to say, you know what, I don't know. And, but that's not traditional coaching, right? Traditional coaching is I'm the coach, you're the student. Mm-hmm. I have the answer what I say is the gospel. And, but I don't know, I've taken a, a, a different approach and I think it, I think it aligns closer to how this generation of players learn. I think you're hundred percent right. Cause there's times in practice where I've done that where I, go, I don't know, let's try it. And they've taken ownership in that when it, and it works. And you can just tell that they have a little bit more, I don't know if the, the, the expression on their face, have a little bit more fun, but they're just, they're loving baseball more because they're being able to get into it right. like that. Right. They're, they're involved in the process instead of just being told what to do, right. you know? And, and so I, I think that's our job in a lot of ways as coaches is to like prepare them so that we can like remove the need for them to rely on us. Like, I feel like my job when I was at Minnesota, like I, I wanted to get to the point where these guys don't even need me anymore. Like I've, I've, I've tried to eliminate my job, which isn't good from a job security standpoint like by any means. But like if you can eliminate the dependency on you, the coach, mm-hmm. I think you've done your job. Coach, let's, we really appreciate your time with us. But one more question for you and talk about something that I thought was extremely awesome and super cool. Uh, to see you guys doing this, but coaches versus COVID and you guys have gotten a really good response. It looks like. Yeah, we've, uh, it's, we've raised over $20,000 in probably three weeks. Um, it's been, it's been super cool. It kind of came together organically. It's pretty raw, uncut. Um, it's, it was really, you know, I was getting requests to, to jump on zoom calls with honestly coaches that I didn't even know, you know, high school coaches that, you know, wanted a few minutes of my time. And, and I've always tried to make sure that I, I was made myself available. Um, you know, I, I rarely say, I never say no to those things. I always try to, to figure out a way to, to fit it in and to, and to answer back to people. And my, anyway, um, so a, a week went by and I found myself on these calls um, because I think there's a lot of coaches out there right now that are, 
you know, like all of us don't know what to do with their time. They're using this time to, to try to learn and to grow. And, and so I was spending a lot of my own personal time, like talking with coaches one-on-one, you know, these, these different consulting calls and, and so forth. And so in a way to protect my own time in a, in a way, like there's gotta be a better way to do this. Like, you know, if we do it in a large group, I can reach more coaches, um, but still preserve some of my own personal time. And then also kind of a calling to, to try to contribute. And, to, and to, I think a lot of people right now, um, there's this sense of kind of helplessness where we're stuck at home. There's all this craziness going on around us, but we don't really know how to help or contribute. Um, so I reached out to a lot of those same people, Kelly, that, that you referenced. Um, you know, my immediate network of, of coaches that are in professional baseball that go back to our time at, at Washington. Um, and said, hey, this is what I'm thinking. Let's these webinar things are starting to to take off. Like, why don't we put some together? Let's do it for free, um, and let's let's kind of spearhead it as a fundraiser, um, as a way to to kind of give back and contribute. And so, a lot of coaches have kind of jumped on board, and and we're offering um, instructional sessions, you know, multiple three, four, five per week. Um, and really, it's a grassroots effort to. And we're trying to inspire other coaches, you know, regardless of how big your network is. Um, you don't have to be a professional baseball coach. Everybody has an ability to influence and, and has some sort of network that, um, you know, that they can tie into. And so we're, we're trying to encourage and inspire as many other coaches as we can to, to kind of jump on this, this mission and, and host their own events and share information and, and uh, encourage people to, to kind of donate, you know, um, you know, as a result. So, so someone, it's been a really cool thing. If someone listening wants to get to watch that or donate, where, where would they go? Uh, we don't have a formal website. Um, you know, we, we've largely just used social, our social media platforms. Um, my Twitter handle is, is at Tanner Swanson, pretty easy to, to remember. So I'm, I'm, uh, you know, posting almost daily of, of as new webinars come together and, and as we, we organize different events um, and then we share out Zoom links, it's all done through Zoom um, and, and people, you know, they, they, they jump on board and it's mostly Q&A format and, and pretty organic where we're just to get a bunch of coaches together and, um, you know, we're talking the game and, and answering questions and, and largely just making ourselves available and, and trying to share as much information as we can. That's awesome, Coach, and and you know that's that's such a cool thing you guys are doing. And you know what? Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to come on with us. We really appreciate that. I've done a lot of these. This is my favorite. I'm a I'm a, a kid of uh, Kittitas County, born and bred. So I'm uh, happy to to contribute. I think what you guys are doing is really cool, and and uh, you know keep it rolling. Absolutely. Maybe we're going to have a fungo banter meeting at the brick here one of these days. We can, we can, uh, yeah, I'll, again. I'll meet you there. I can, I can walk home. Perfect. Camping at Swanee's. We don't have, we don't have Uber. There's no Uber up here. Uh, well, coach, thank you again. And, and fans will be right back with Jason and Kelly to close this thing out. All right. Fungo banter fans. We're back in the bullpen for the, I think we're in the eighth try now. Uh, I do have some recordings for the blooper reel for all you fans listening. Uh, we'll be charging for that one, of course. Uh, but no, so, okay, we're going to close this thing out. I'm going to lead off. My first thing I thought uh, that really dawned on me was uh, playing for Coach Swanson at Central and, and making sure that I 
you know, question the why and didn't get stuck in the old school ways of how I was, I was taught things back in the day and the, to make sure to research and to get better and to become a student of the game. I, I think that's the biggest thing we can do is become a student of the game. Um, the other thing that, that he talked about there, and I think I heard it in a few of his talks uh, along the way uh, at, at the coaches' conventions, but, you know, practice planning and the percentage of time to realizing what, what's the most high percentage things that happen throughout a game. And so why would we not practice those the most instead of doing something that happens 2% of the time and doing that the whole practice. Okay. Now let's look at what's, you know, like he said, catching framing, that's every pitch is you're going to be framing and catching the ball. And then that, so that should consume the majority of your time rather than, you know, blocking and, and throwing guys out. That's, that's really important too, but it's just, you know, realizing what's what's going to happen the most and perfecting that and then working your craft the rest of the way. Yeah, totally. Um, I, I think that's uh, super important. You know, I think uh, a couple of things that come to mind is that, first of all, I think we forget as coaches, and I think a lot happens with the amateur coach and, and just the high school level and the younger, we, we kind of discredit the role of the catcher a lot. Um, you know, I think, see my son, you know, he's just getting in the low league and, and they just throw a kid on there with gear and say, go catch. Well, you know, I mean, you're talking about, you want to win ball games. I know this is, you know, eight year old, literally, you know, double a baseball, you know, but the thing is, is that if with good catchers, you're going to win a lot of games. Um, there's an important pull, uh, role in, in what they do there guys, you know, I mean, the percentage of what you're saying there, Eric, you know, them touching the ball throughout the game is, is, is huge. And so why don't we put the emphasis on, the role of the catcher and, you know, make it part of our practice plans and coming up with better methods to, you know, advance our guys to, you know, as the game changes. And that, I think this is number two is that comes to mind is, is what I really about Swanee is that, you know, you don't marry just one thing. I think that there's a lot of coaches out there, not all, you know, but I think there's a new change of role, but coaches will come in and they'll, they'll hear one thing, you know, uh, you know, and they just kind of stick and marry to it, you know. And the thing is, is that, you know, if we want to grow our knowledge and, and uh, you know, um, growth of the, the game and, and how we want to teach this out, we got to we got to question things, you know. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of our time spent here, guys, is that I've grown more as a coach during this quarantine time than I think I have in the last, you know, five years, you know. And I, and I think that's part of it is just, just the involvement and listening to all these great coaches that have been on here, you know, a friend of mine I talked to and I kind of going to sh- give him a shout out is, uh, is, is a winemaker and uh, his name is Brandon Rice up at Angel Lake, but he was talking about, you know, you know, the, being a better person of your practice, you know, if you want to be a good winemaker, you're going to involve yourselves with good people that know how to make wine, you know, and, and the more you involve yourself, the more questions you ask, the more you listen, the better, you know, white maker or coach or who teacher or whatever you are, you're going to, you're going to grow substantially. And that's the thing I think the key is, is that we as coaches have got to continue to take those initiatives and listen to those clients and read those books and hear other guys talk. And both of you guys have been a huge impact on me, you know, growing and understanding and dialoguing our understanding of the game. And if we can do that, man, what a great betterment for the game and also for our student athletes. Yeah, I think um, I think a lot of what comes down to for us, and, and we're all head coaches here, but uh, hopefully everyone has an opportunity to experience that to, to some regard, whether that's 12U or 
or high school or college. Um, but a lot of a lot of what we do comes down to what we prioritize, you know, and, and our time is a lot more expansive than your guys. Um, but still, we have a set amount of time with our with our student athletes and we're going to design a practice plan um, built around what we prioritize, whether that's um, more hit work or more individual defense time. Whatever that is, you know, and 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 I think we've we've outlaid the the importance of the catching position. I think it gets somewhat pushed to the side, mostly because if you look at a team, there's only three, four catchers with within that team. Um, then you look at <clears throat> infield and outfield and pitchers. There's a lot more of those on any given team, um, and, and you start to look at guys continuing to coach. And naturally, the same numbers, the same splits of coaches go down to the positions that they've played, whether a pitching guy, an infield guy, an outfield guy. But because there's, there's so few catchers uh, that, that play the position, there's just not as many out there to teach it and to continue it. Um, so there comes a time where people like Tanner had to take that dive and, and teach themselves the, self the position. And, and that made him so much better. Um, of a coach as a, as a whole, because he took on something new and foreign to him and, and took it in full stride. Um, so whether that's a head coach, maybe taking over the position because he doesn't have anyone to work with the catchers. I know I'm very fortunate to have, uh, someone that's, that's very invested in, in Joey Swanson with, with the catching position and those guys wanting to get better, but that's not the case at a lot of different places. Um, so if that's something you prioritize, you, you either have to give that, um, faith in, in someone young to learn it for themselves or, or pick it up yourself. Um, but I, I think the growth aspect is the biggest thing that I took out of this and, and working side by side with, with Tanner um, the, the attention to detail that that guy has and every single thing he does in the planning, the preparation and the evaluation is second to none. I mean, and it's everything that he does. Um, so the guys that really want to be good at this are, are constantly modifying their craft and it's not all skill position stuff. Um, it could be a speaking engagement like he talked about. It could be as simple as putting on a camp for for high school players. And I got to be in that war room, and it was this constant search for what is going to be the most efficient thing that we can do. Um, and I think our default sometimes as coaches is, well, this is the way that we've done it. Um, rather than pushing thought of what is that most efficient, that best way of either teaching a skill or or running a practice. But for me, it comes down to prioritization. Um, you know, do your research of, of finding what, what, um, is the truce in that catching position and, and why it's important, um, and maybe give it more time. Um, but at the end of the day, it all comes down to, to what's the main thing for you as a coach and, and giving that the most time that, that is needed in, in a given practice setting or, or even a block plan for a fall, spring or summer. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I thought that was awesome that he said is that, you know, you don't go trying to just you're going to go watch someone do it and then go teach it you need to make it your own you right. need to learn it and like i commented then it's, the kids are going to see through you if you if you try to go be if you try to go be tanner swanson catching coach but if you can learn and form it to fit you and so you can teach it to the kid i think that's the key yeah absolutely i 100 percent agree and and i think that's that's the way you have to have your core values because when someone else says something that might go against what your core values of instruction are, the default is to say, no, this is the way that we do it. But if, if you don't have a system in place initially, you have nothing to compare it to. And if you have your baseline and something is more efficient to the, whatever that baseline is, 
it's going to cause you to have second thoughts. But if you're just to pick up something blind and try to teach it, you have nothing to compare it to. Um, and, and you lose that feel factor, too, of, of knowing whether from a visual perceptual standpoint of seeing this in practice and what's worked or hasn't worked in instruction or just purely the knowledge base of not remembering exactly from a T what it is, it makes it really difficult. Absolutely. Well, that wraps up another episode of your Pacific Northwest Fungo Banter. Get on Facebook, search us Pacific Northwest Fungo Banter. Follow us on Twitter at Fungo Banter PNW. We're on all Apple iTunes, uh, Spotify, Google Podcasts. And check us out. Subscribe, rate, let us know how we're doing. And until next week, we will be... Oh, wait, before we go, we got to talk about our shout out on Twitter and Facebook. Get on there. We'll be putting a poll up throughout the week. We put some questions out. I got We'll have a banter question coming out in the next day or two. Uh, reach out, vote, talk to us. Let's have some great conversation and, and just get better at baseball. So take care of one another, stay healthy, and let's get back to baseball. <laughs>